All right, so if you guys missed the first week, uh, quick recap. Week one, we talked about playing with fire. You know, we have this title of the Holy Spirit. You know, in the scriptures, the, the primary picture of the Spirit is wind or breath, if you would. But uh, in the New Testament, he takes on this new form of fire. And so in the first week, we talked about why people don't like playing with fire. And simply put, we don't like playing with fire because he's uncontrollable, he's mysterious, uh, and he's dangerous to our idols. Basically, the problem with fire is if you can keep fire in the fireplace, if you can keep it inside your uh, man-made structure, if you can just contain fire, it's beautiful, right? It's pretty, it's warm, it's nice and fun, right? Make some uh, uh, s'mores, anybody? Roast some hot dogs? But what happens when that fire gets out of control, when you can't contain it? Yeah, <laughs> yes, Matthew, it's destructive, right? It's fire, right? We, we don't like playing with fire because you can get burned. Um, Stanley Harwas, uh, whenever he would talk about the Holy Spirit, he called it the, the out-of-control Spirit of God. Think about that. The out-of-control spirit of God. So here's the question to you. Why in the world would you ever want a God you can't control? I think on paper most of us say, yeah, yeah, of course we want a God we can't control. But in practicality, most all of us here are absolutely safe when we are in control of the steering wheel of our lives. We do not want to allow God to truly uh, intervene. This idea in the, in the book of Acts of heaven invading earth, if you would, of, of the reign of Jesus coming into our lives. Who really wants that? And what happens with the Holy Spirit is that he, he is where the promises that we make, that the ideas of God, the, the intentions of our heart, it's where it gets real. When this God that we commit to, that we pray to, that we worship, all of a sudden he shows up at our front door. It's, uh, it's like how, how pretty the idea of marriage is, right? It's, <laughs> marriage is this beautiful thing. Until you get married, right? <laughs> you find out it's not everything you thought it was. When the person shows up and you wake up next to them and they don't go anywhere. And the next day and the next day and they start messing with things. They have their own opinions and ideas. And you realize your life is never the same again. Who really wants that? <laughs> kidding, kidding. You all want that. We all want that, right? So last week, we had fun last week with breathing, okay? I mean, uh, who was here last week for Mother's Day? We had a huge crowd last week. Okay, so we talked about breathing, right? We breathe from our what? gut, stomach, right? Not our chest. In essence, most of us breathe backwards, right? We breathe where the chest goes out and the stomach goes in. We're to breathe the other way. The way we're supposed to breathe is the stomach goes out and the chest goes in. We're supposed to have these deep breaths. We're supposed to be taking four to seven breaths a minute, but most of us take 18 to 20 breaths. We sip on air. We sip. The idea is that we've learned to get just enough of what we need to survive, but in the scriptures, when you go back to Genesis, the very life that we get, the very way that man was created was from the breath of God, the, the ruach of God, this holy breath of God, the spirit of God. And the ancient rabbis, when they would teach on the spirit of God, on the very name of God, Yahweh, what they believed was that his holy name was actually created to make us understand that his name sounds like breathing. yah ha Va-yah. This idea that just to breathe is to be in communion with God. That your very nature, the fact that you are alive today, you were created to, to be in moment-by-moment moment connection with the person who created you. And so we had this entire week last week. We learned how to breathe a little bit, but the whole idea was what? Learning how to breathe deeply in God. 
to not just breathe deeply naturally, but learning that the entire essence of living is to be lived moment by moment in deep communion with our Creator. Amen? All right, I've been wasting time trying to avoid the, the big one. What's today? What's this Sunday? Does anyone know? Pentecost, the 50th day. That's what it means, right? Fancy, huh? The 50th day. We're, t- we're celebrating Pentecost today. We, we are celebrating the 40th day after the resurrection of Jesus. What we see is we see the resurrection of Jesus. He, he dies, he rises again, and he comes back to his disciples. And for 40 days, he instructs them on the kingdom of God. And then he ascends, he disappears. Uh, and then what happens here is now the disciples are on their own. And the last commission, the last uh, command they've been given is to wait for the Holy Spirit, the gift of God, to come to them. So that's what we're celebrating today. But before we jump into that, I want to give you guys a little bit of background on what Pentecost was at the time, okay? If you would, uh, go to Acts chapter 1. We're going to go ahead and start here. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Now, what's important for you guys to understand, the, the author of the book of Acts is the same author of the Gospel of Luke, okay? This is still Luke. He's, he's telling the same story. So what's so beautiful about this is, if you read the Gospel of Luke through uh, the book of Acts, it's a seamless transition of story, okay? And most theologians believe that these letters, these stories were actually given intact. So whenever they read the gospel of Jesus through Luke, they actually read the story of the church, the book of Acts, hand in hand. And so what's going on here, here we go in, chapter, in uh, verse 1, chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 6. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the time or dates the Father set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before the very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their view. Now, what in the world is going on here, right? Now... Whenever you guys think about the Holy Spirit, what do you typically think about? I mean, anyone want to holler something out? When you think Holy Spirit, what do you think? No one has any thoughts on the Holy Spirit whatsoever. You are allowed to talk this Sunday. When you think Holy Spirit, what do you think? Power. What? Speaking in tongues. What? A teacher. Okay. He's a tame teacher. And anything else? Oh, wisdom. Okay. Anything else? Oh, man, you guys give some really calm answers. I want some crazy stuff. You know, like, you know, like uh, spirit running. How about spirit running? Anyone seen any of that before, you know? Everyone's like, no, we're going to leave if you do, right? Okay. Um, healings, miracles, right? Typically, 
Most people, when you when you talk about the Holy Spirit, what, what they what they refer to it as as actions, right? The Book of Acts, if you would. This idea that when the Holy Spirit comes, He's doing all this crazy stuff, this supernatural stuff that takes place. Now, what has to be understood here is the context. As we've learned, you know, we always say the context of everything. What is happening before the big happening? What is what's leading up to the day the Holy Spirit shows up? Now. Here's one thing I want you to understand, okay? You understand that Pentecost was being celebrated as the 50th day after the, the Passover. So if you, if you go back to Sunday school, if you guys remember your stories about the children of Israel in Egypt, right? And this idea that whenever God was going to free them, the spirit of death came into Egypt. And what they did was they took the blood of a lamb, they put it um, on the doorpost of their homes, and death would go over them. It would pass over them, right? It's a foreshadowing of Jesus, right? The ultimate sacrificial lamb. And so what would happen, 50 days after that, the Jews found themselves at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is considered one of the ultimate uh, moments for Jews where God made himself manifest, where he showed people who he was, where he took the mask, if you would, and he took it off to allow his people to see who he was. And so what happens at Mount Sinai, we see covenant. This, this, this commitment to have deep relationship and partnership on the earth. But what took place in here and what's kind of hidden in the story is that we see this God of lightning, thunder, and fire and power. He tells his people he's coming down off the mountain. But what takes place is that fear, misunderstanding, whatever reasons, this is pushed back. Okay, the, the people of God decide this is not what they desire. So what's given them in place is something we call the law, right? The Torah. And so here's where you get the Ten Commandments. We get this, these parameters. These, uh, it's like marriage, right? To be married to someone, here's certain things. I need to be faithful. I have to love them. I have to care for them, right? It's almost like vows. It's, it's kind of outlining what the relationship will be like. And so Torah becomes the outline of relationship. To be in relationship with God requires you to follow these, these laws. So Pentecost was the celebration of the law. So what happens is there are three festivals for the Jews where everyone travels in the town. Everyone. And this happens to be one of them, the Feast of Weeks. So we have Jews and God-fearing Gentiles from all over the area who are all in Jerusalem with one thing on their mind. An entire week-long festival thinking about the law. So this is what they're drinking, thinking about, eating, thinking about, talking about. This is what they're dancing about. This is what they're being solemn about. The entire week they're thinking about the law. And on this day is the day the Holy Spirit comes on Passover. So what you have to understand here is that, the, that Luke is drawing lines. He's, he's making connections here. He is showing us what God is about to do. So let's figure, let's, let's go ahead and read what God's about to do. If you've got your Bibles, go to the, the book of Acts chapter 2 verse 1. Now, uh, hold on to your pants. Things are about to get a little bit crazy. You guys ready for this? So, when the 50th day came, when Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Let's just pause for one moment. I taught this two years ago, and Pastor Zach, who's a great theologian, a great teacher, he heard me teaching this. He goes, whoa, 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 that's figurative language. They didn't really hear or see anything. And, of course, we went to the Scriptures, and he realized, 
oh, uh-oh. <laughs> What's happening in this moment, literally, they are hearing something. They're in prayer. I'm sure they've been here for a while. They've been waiting for days. They're in this room. They're scared. They're nervous. They are alone. Jesus has ascended, okay? They are alone and confused, and they're in this place in a sound like a rushing wind. If that happened, most of us would be like, okay, the air conditioning's really good in this room, right? You'd be like, okay, that's okay. I think I can handle that part. So first they hear, and then what happens? Then they see something, right? What do they see? Flaming tongues. Okay. A tongue is not a beautiful part of the body. Let's just be honest, okay? I mean, if I saw a tongue on a plate, I know this is crazy, stay with me. I would be a little bit, yeah, okay? If I saw a tongue flying, yeah, right? If I saw a tongue flying in what? On fire, <laughs> bah! And now it's doing what? Now it's separating and setting on each, in essence, it's chasing these people, okay? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine this? Like, you hear the sound, oh, what's that sound? Oh, it's nothing. <gasps> what's that? That's something. Now, what's interesting is that they don't run. I mean, again, like I would be running. I think you would be running. I think all of us would be running, okay? But they don't run. So the question here for us is, why is this familiar to them? What is it about this that I'm sure it bothers them, but how are they able to understand that this is God and not just a really bad burrito the night before, right? Like, how do they know this is something from God? Now, what we have to understand is this, okay? All Jews from a very young age are taught the Torah. Now, there are levels of testing, if you would, to figure out who's, who is worthy to continue studying the Scriptures. But every one of them had a certain level and understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures, of the law, and specifically even of the prophecies. And what you need to understand here is there's a lot of symbolism going on. First of all, the first symbol we're getting, we're getting wind and fire, a picture that we see that happened on, on Mount Sinai, also a picture that we see that takes place with the prophets. We are seeing these symbols of God's favor, if you would, a thumbprint. In the Old Testament, when the prophets would come with a new message, the way that people would know it was from God was there would be a thumbprint, something that made them stand out. So a sign, a wonder, some kind of authority, some kind of power, something that made people know this is God. And so what you're seeing here is a combination of images from the prophets, from the old history, and from the law that is telling them and telling the people that they're about to go to, this is of me. Now we talked about this in week one. The Holy Spirit has the same functions in the Old Testament as he does in the New Testament. And one of the things the Holy Spirit is, is doing in Scripture from the beginning to end, he's always there at the moment of creation. Meaning, we see him in creation with the Father and the Son uh, in Genesis 1. We see him as the primary being in operation to bring life to Adam, right? He is the breath itself, the thing that brings life to humans, to Adam. He's there with the birth of Adam, but yet he also shows up with the second Adam, Jesus, right? The Holy Spirit is the one who impregnates Mary. He's the one who breathes the life, if you would, into Jesus himself. And then we see in the ministry of Jesus that Jesus goes on to his ministry only after what? Only after being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And now he's, at, he's here birthing something new again. He is birthing the church. Are you seeing this? The first operation the Holy Spirit is always in work in is creation. He's always creating and doing new things. The second thing we see the Holy Spirit do in the Old Testament 
The Spirit of God is always involved in empowerment, meaning when God wants to accomplish something through a judge, a prophet, a king, the Spirit of God would come upon them to enable them to accomplish God's will. And so when Jesus in chapter 1 told them they're going to wait until the what? The Holy Spirit comes to give them power, dunamos, like dynamite, to accomplish, to be His witnesses, to basically to be His messengers. What you need to understand is that a Jew would not understand it as these people are being messengers. What they would understand is these are now prophets. This is a picture of God putting His Spirit to create new prophets. People who have the message from God. And the reason this is so important is God is about to change everything. And it's crucial that everyone knows this is from Him. On the day that everyone is here celebrating the written law, this, this old parameter, this old box, if you will, the old way that we're to relate to God, on the day of celebrating the written law, God is now releasing the law of the Spirit. A new box, a new outline of what it means and what it's like to be in relationship with God. In this relationship, to be in relationship with God, I do these things, I follow these, these boxes, I check these boxes off. I do this and I don't do that. In this relationship with God, it's all determined by my relationship with His very Spirit. In this relationship with God, His Spirit is in the temple, is in the tabernacle. It's separated from me. In this relationship with God, I myself become the temple and tabernacle of God. The place where God now meets with me is here. Now, we've talked about this in our entire series on that, right? We are but a picture of the tabernacle, but the presence itself only manifests in the church of God, which becomes the, the overlapping picture of the temple of God, the people. I understand where I land. I'm trying not to go into like rabbit trails this morning. You have no idea how much is being packed into this little chapter. Let's read on. So what happens here, verse uh, 5. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem... God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came to them in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. So utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these people speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Uh, I'm not going to go through all those different countries, but you can read. Um, <laughs> and, so, and so we have all these people from all different nations, and they all say, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? And of course, as always, you got the hecklers. And so some people respond by saying, well, they're cheap, they're, they're drunk on cheap wine, of course. Now, here's, here's the one thing I want to talk about. This, there are a few things that have popped out in this passage. Here's the first one that pops out. Now, we just talked about this. The sound of wind, okay, and the sight of fire. Now, this is God communicating in if you would, putting his thumbprint of approval on what is about to take place to the apostles. They are, they are able to understand this, this thing, this, these, these images are familiar. They are connecting the dots for them to what they were taught in the law and the prophets. And what's happening here is that we might even see a picture going back to Babel. If you guys remember the Tower of Babel, right? This idea that man would unite together on their own and like they had a common language. And because they had a common language, they were able to be unified. And what they do is they unify themselves against and apart from God. What this seems to show us is there is a purification, a preparation that God is going to unite himself with all of man. 
And what man was going to create was Babel, was this picture of a society where, God, where man was God. But now God is coming to establish the kingdom of heaven where Jesus himself is God and king. Are you seeing this? Because again, this tongues of flame, this picture of what's going to happen, and we see it in the prophets, I think it was uh, even Jeremiah or Ezekiel, where they had the picture of this hot stone purification going upon his tongue, that he would be prepared to speak the heart and the will of God. But it's not just on one man anymore. It's on every single person, over 120 people in this upper room, and it's man, women, and child. This is unheard of. And so, the next thing we see, we see this speaking in other tongues. Okay, so brace yourself. Here we go. It's the first time we see speaking in tongues. But it's important to understand this. Not to be confused with the personal gift of tongues that we see in Corinthians, which the Apostle Paul is talking about. We'll talk about that next week. What this is, the disciples are unable to speak languages of men as a sign and wonder confirming the message. What this is, simply put, they are speaking languages of the earth that they did not know without the Spirit of God. Okay? What this would be is, say I'm up here, uh, you know, talking. All of a sudden, I just started speaking some crazy language. No one knew what it was. And we had someone stand up, you know, from, from India who, who spoke a very unique dialect from India that there's no way I can know. But somehow, this was a sign, a wonder, a proof to them. Again, it's a proof that it was God himself. That what's happening here, what's being said, comes from God. And that's why it needs proof, because it's so dramatic it's so life-transforming. It's so difficult to accept. It needs proof to come with it. And that is what's happening here. You have so many different people from all different walks of life. Uh, the Scripture says uh, God-freeing Jews from every nation under heaven are in this place. They're all in town for the festival of weeks. And what happens is, is they hear the sound, the sound of the wind. Now, I'm not sure if they saw the tongues. I think if they did, that they wouldn't be there. They'd be running away. But they heard the sound of the wind. And then they heard... <laughs> The commotion of tongues. And so now people are crowding the streets. You have to understand, the streets in Jerusalem are not very wide. They're actually very narrow. So people are cramming in to see what is happening. And when these people, when these disciples stumble out of this room, they appear drunk, okay? And when they come out, they are speaking the wonders of God in all the different languages of the earth. This, this gift of tongues is not what we refer to, we talk about prayer language or personal gift of tongues. This is not for edification of us or the body of Christ. This is a sign to unbelievers, if you would. This is speaking the tongues of men. The Apostle Paul has another phrase for speaking the tongues of angels. This, this thing is such a powerful deal because, again, what's about to follow this gift of tongues is more important and needs to be confirmed by this manifestation of a wonder. So now that the crowds gather, people from all over the world are here, and now they are all convinced this must be God because there's no way this Galilean, a person who's famous for being stupid, they're just fishermen, okay, there's no way this guy knows all these different languages. Now there's, these people are now prepared and ready to receive what God is doing on the earth. And here's what, the next thing we see. The next thing that takes place is the first gospel sermon in scriptures. Okay, in Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter stands up and he gives the first gospel sermon. And this is so crucial because one of the first things he says is he connects what's happening to the prophecy of Joel, where the spirit, where the prophecy that God would pour his spirit upon all flesh. And what this is, it's a picture of God coming to where, how do you put this? The rabbis taught it like this. 
It's like Legos, right? Two things that were meant to go together. And so the idea was that when, when the kingdom, when the Messiah would reign, the, the glory of God, the knowledge of God, the spirit of God would roll over the earth, would fill in all the empty places the way it was always meant to be. So this is the idea, again, of heaven and earth colliding. And this outpouring of the spirit is the first encounter we have of what it's going to be like when the Messiah is king. Amen? I understand there's a lot. I'm trying to... Don't want to get us buried too much just in one chapter, right? There's a lot going on here. So what takes place, we see the, the first gospel message is preached, and basically what the Apostle Peter is trying to do, he's trying to convince everyone there that this Jesus is the one who was prophesied to establish the, the reign of David, where he would restore all the people of God. He would establish the, the reign of Jubilee, where everything is perfect, all rights are wrong, all, all injustice is made right, and everything is made the way it was intended to be. He's connecting the dots saying, this is Jesus. And the response, because of the manifestation of the Spirit, because of the, this gift of tongues, because of this piercing of the heart, we see that the Scriptures say that, every, that all the hearers were cut to the heart. And then the Apostle uh, Peter told them, if you, if you receive this, if you want to be a part of the reign of Jesus, of this Messiah who's going to make everything right, be baptized today. And so we see thousands get baptized. But here's the big kicker that I want to get to. If you guys have your Bibles, go to um, Acts chapter 2, verse 30, uh, verse 40. Let's start there. Actually, we'll say 41. Verse 41. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. It says, Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, go back to verse 42 right there. Do you guys remember the series we did on the church? Do you guys remember that? We talked about kononia. What's kononia mean? (laughs) Social what? Social intercourse. Everyone's like, we're never coming back to church again. Okay, that's what the word actually means. Okay, it's the deepest form of fellowship, friendship, deep connection you can have with someone who's not family. It is this intimate relationship. It's this deep exchange. It's this relationship with no walls. And so, one of the most important things I want you to see that's taking place here with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is coming to empower, to enable, to make his followers able to embody the gospel. And again, I want to make this as simple as I can. The Holy Spirit is showing up to, to in his people, in the church, to create a picture of what is to come, to create a billboard, if you would, showing the world what is going to be like under the reign of Christ. And so the Holy Spirit is the one who fills us and enables us to live in a way that is impossible for us to live without the Holy Spirit. He's the one who makes all these commitments that we desire to make possible for us. And he creates this lifestyle, this family 
that looks so different from anything else on the earth that it, it is a testimony, it's proof, if you would, that Jesus is real and that His reign is real. So what happens here is that the ultimate proof, the ultimate manifestation of the Spirit of God is not healing or tongues or signs and wonders or prophecies. The ultimate manifestation, the ultimate purpose of the Holy Spirit is to enable the church to embody the kingdom of God. And so what we see here in chapter 2 into 3 and all the way through, through chapter 9, we see this new family of people who have nothing in common but live in such a way as they have everything in common. These people that are willing to sell all their possessions, they're willing to overcome language barriers, they're willing to overcome uh, religious barriers, they're willing to live in a way of love and sacrifice that's impossible without the Holy Spirit. It's a powerful picture of, of what the kingdom of God is going to look like. Now, I want to explain a few things going on here. Understand that this is a lot more controversial than most of us think, okay? Understand that in this crowd, we have people from all different nations. We have people who are Jews, people who are Gentiles, people who are, who are men, people who are women, children. What's so powerful about this moment is that the Spirit of God is poured out on all flesh. One of the ultimate pictures of the church is the word reconciliation. In Corinthians, we talk about we're all called to be ministers of reconciliation, right? Well, the birth of the church is one of the ultimate pictures of that reconciliation. In this moment, whenever the Apostle Peter quotes uh, the prophecy of Joel, it's a prophecy where the Spirit of God is going to fall on men and women. It's going to fall on slave and free. It's going to fall on rich and poor. It's going to fall on Jew and Gentile. In the kingdom of heaven, in the church, one of the ultimate signs of the power and the love of God is a people united who have no reason to be united. My hope is that Grace Church looks so diverse that people come here and say, why are these people going to church together? So many colors and ages, educations, incomes, languages, we're not there yet. The Spirit of God pushes, urges, pulls us to accomplish this Christ-likeness that we can't do without Him. How do I even explain this in a simple way? Have you ever walked into a, uh, an ethnic market? We'll call it that. Um, how about this? In Fort Smith, one of the gyms I used to go to, we used to practice basketball in this gym in the ghetto. It, it was actually pretty bad. But my favorite place to go was the Asian market down there. You walk in, there's like hunks of fish just hanging, you know what I'm talking about? Like, anyone been there? No? All the white people are like, no, we don't, we, we don't go down there, right? You walk in, the lady in the back looks at you, you know, she has like her peas or something, you know? She looks at you like, what are you doing here? And of course, she starts talking to you and, you know, Korean, you have no clue what you're talking about. The food, you have no idea what the food is, you have no idea what the prices say, you are completely out of your element. What's your natural response? Exactly, right? To leave. Your natural response is to leave. Because you have nothing in common. Not a single thing. 
you have to understand, in this moment in the streets, these people were not in the streets together, like going to the same place. They're not all connected. These people were, you know, coming and going, doing their own things. Yes, they're all there to celebrate the feast, but half of them could not even communicate. They speak different languages. They have different cultures. They're different colors. But yet, the Holy Spirit came in such a powerful way that all these people who had nothing in common were immediately bonded into a family relationship that would take years and years for us to force. People that we would never hang out with, people that we, we, we would never be around. We're not even just talking about having hate or racism. We're just talking about just being uncomfortable. Often when we look for churches, we look for a place that we're comfortable, a place that does things that we're used to, people that look like us, people that talk like us, people that we are like. Because when we find people that we are not like, it's uncomfortable. What's that number one characteristic of the Holy Spirit we talked about in week one? He is uncomfortable. He's always leading us and pushing us places that we do not want to go. I don't care what you've heard about the Holy Spirit. One of the number one reasons you need the Holy Spirit in your life is because He will lead you into places and into people's lives you would never go on your own. He will lead you into deep fellowship and relationship in the church. He will also lead you on mission, meaning He will take you out of your comfort zone, take you out of focusing on your own needs, and He will take you into someone else's life to serve and to help and to find a way to bless people that you would avoid with all your might. You know, and I have to just emphasize this. I, I know that we all have different ideas of the Holy Spirit. We all picture all sorts of different things. What Jesus said was that he was coming to empower us to be messengers, to be witnesses. That we, he was coming with the primary purpose to enable us to inhabit, to embody the kingdom of heaven. To show people what it is like when everything is made right. And that's one of the biggest things that we have to learn to embrace the Holy Spirit for. So, how are you guys doing this morning? Do I would you say uncomfortable? Well, amen, right? We, we had lots of fun last week. This week, we've had all sorts of homework to do. I know to get, to get up to speed on Pentecost, but here's something for you here. Okay. So, when we start this morning, I asked you guys, I asked you, you know, how are you guys doing? So, if you're honest, you probably get asked that every day. Would you agree? Someone asks you how you are. At work, you know, at McDonald's, you know. I want to talk to you. Right? I want my sandwich at McDonald's, right? I'll do much better when you give me my Egg McMuffin, right? Okay. We get asked this all the time. Most of you, most of you, because I know some of you guys are just, you know, rebels. Most of you say what? Well, if I were to ask you, hey, how are you today? You say what? Fine, good. I'm doing okay, right? Now, we focused last week on breathing, right? This idea that we do these things without even thinking about them, there's something deeper hidden underneath it. Most of us live in a way to where we are trying to hide our needs from ourselves and from others. Okay. When I asked you that, how are you doing today? Most of you said, okay, and again, if you said anything in your mind or whatever out loud, you said just fine. First reason. Probably because you either what? First of all, you didn't want to talk about it. Agreed? Is that you? Okay. Arm and a hand. We're going to raise them. Okay, okay. 
Who here said, fine, whatever, blah, blah, because you just didn't want to talk about it? Anybody? Some honesty. I love honesty. Okay, two. Who said that because you truly don't know? You're just not aware of it. It's like breathing, right? Who's, because you're just not aware of it. What happens for us is that we find a way to wake up every single day and to be all right. Uh, you guys know what floating is? You know, like just to float in the water? You know what I'm talking about? There is a way that you can float in the water. Now, again, everyone who's seen me swim knows I cannot float. I'm terrible. I just sink. But there's a way to just use as little energy as possible and just keep your head above the water, just to float, to be all right. Most mornings when you wake up and you go to McDonald's or you go to work and you get asked that question, whether you know it or not, the truth is deep inside, the answer is, I am not all right. Would you agree? Whether you are aware of it or not, the truth is, if you were to stop in that moment, say, you know, you're in the drive and the guy asks you, you go, okay, one second, let me think about it. <laughs> Which, by the way, you should try that. Just, just, just like see what happens. <sighs> you know what? Now you ask me, I'm really not, <laughs> just see what happens, right? You'll get a free meal out of it, I promise. No, no it's fine. Here's your money. You know, I don't need your card. The truth is, most of us are not doing all right. Um... Here's the thing. The Holy Spirit, he shows up in the scriptures in the Old Testament and the New, and he's always there to fill a hole. He's always there to meet a need. Whether he's teaching, whether it's wisdom or healing or, or you know, providing something, whether it's guidance or an answer, whether it's encouragement or protection, he's always showing up to meet some kind of need. When you watch the ministry of Jesus, every time something supernatural happens, it's because there was a need. If you notice in the first chapter, the, the commission to, the, to his disciples was to take this message, this gospel. The Holy Spirit is going to prepare them and empower them to take this message to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost. If you, if you actually read the book of Acts, it follows this pattern. It starts in Jerusalem, goes to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost. The one thing that's so crazy about this, there are signs and wonders every single step, but they're different for every area. Go read it tonight. What happens in Jerusalem is not what happens in Judea. What happens in Judea is not what happens in Samaria. In some places, there's exorcism. Spirits are being cast out of people. In other cities, they're not casting out spirits. They're healing people. In other cities, they're not casting out spirits or healing people. They're actually having miracles, meaning someone getting bit by a snake and nothing happening. The Holy Spirit shows up according to need. The very essence of the gospel is that everything is wrong and Jesus will come make everything right. And when the Holy Spirit was sent to empower us to take this message, the proofs, if you would, the way that we let people taste what Jesus is going to do is through the Holy Spirit. We come and we, we share who Jesus is. We embody the love and the sacrifice, the compassion, the gentleness. We embody this. But then when people say, are you sure, we give them a taste. And we give them a taste according to need. The primary reason that anyone in this room does not have a lively, healthy, real relationship with the Holy Spirit, you've you found a way to say, I'm fine. When there is no need in your life, 
that you're aware of or you will allow yourself to be aware of, you do not feel the need for the Holy Spirit. Who needs to wrestle with an, with an uncontrollable, unpredictable Spirit of God if everything's fine? If you don't have to wrestle with that mess, why even do it? When the hailstorm comes, right? Why wrestle with the insurance agents if you don't need their help? Just leave them alone because it's not worth the, the mess, right? But when you really need this stupid dents fixed and you have to send it to Jason, <laughs> you've got to call the insurance agent, right? You've got to answer the questions. You have to go to the appointment. You have to wrestle with something that's uncomfortable. Why? Because you need something. In the Scriptures, the people who never received the gospel of God, the ones who never were open to it, or the ones who did not feel the need for it. Jesus always ended every parable with my favorite saying, right? In the kingdom of God, what? The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. He was never saying that if you have money, if you have a, a good life, you won't receive it. He was saying that only those who realize that they have nothing are, are the first ones to dive in. What's going on right now in the church is that the parts of the church that are thriving are all in third world countries. Africa, parts of Asia, South America. These parts of, of the church are growing daily. I'm talking thousands of people being saved daily. It is, it is astronomical how many people are being saved in those parts of the world and how sad how many people are coming to Christ in Europe in the West, especially in the U.S. We do not feel the need for him. You have some of the, you know, I grew up charismatic, so we were taught that Catholics and, you know, Episcopalians, you know, anybody who had, you know, communion all the time was dry and I didn't need the spirit. In South America, some of the most crazy stories are coming from spirit-filled Catholic churches. Episcopalian churches. The church in Africa outgrows us every single day. It's, it's crazy. Because they have awareness of their need. The biggest struggle for us is that we have so many more things that can convince us we're fine. I get my coffee, egg McMuffin, <laughs> whatever. Netflix. We, can, we have so many layers to convince ourselves that we are okay. And here's the deal. As a pastor, I don't want the Holy Spirit here because I am scared. I'm not lying to you. On a good Sunday, we've got about 300 and some people. I'm convinced sometimes the Holy Spirit comes, we're going to be down to 30. <laughs> Why should I wrestle with something so uncontrollable, so scary, so God out of the box, if I don't have to? If everything's going fine at Grace Church, why should we even open that box? It's only an illusion that we don't need God. We have found ways to wake up every morning and say, you know, we're good. Things are fine. Relationship with the Holy Spirit begins with admitting that you are not all right. Would you guys stay with me? We're going to close with communion this morning.